From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on this archived edition of The Public Morality, I speak with Harvard professors Stephen Levisky and Daniel Zablat about their best-selling book, How Democracies Die. And after that, former vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board, Alice Rivlin, joins me for a discussion about the debt, the deficit, and the economy. That's coming up on this archived edition of The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. Earlier this year, Harvard professors Stephen Levisky and Daniel Zablat released their best-selling book, How Democracies Die. It was simultaneously a sober assessment as well as a clarion call combining political science and historical analysis to remind us that this radical undertaking that produced an ongoing experiment based on liberty and equality is not immune from implosion. As the New York Times wrote, Levisky and Zablat show how democracies have collapsed elsewhere, not just through violent clues, but more commonly and insidiously through a gradual slide into authoritarianism, how democracies die, is a lucid and essential guide to what can happen here. I spoke with Levisky and Zablat in January. Spend some time um, talking about the Democratic small d guardrails that have been imposed in myriad ways to uh, protect our democracy, including the Electoral College, which I just might add, paradoxically, was the reason that Donald Trump became the 45th president. Right. Yeah, I don't think, you know, I would, I, I'm not sure if we would call the Electoral College a democratic guardrail. I mean, it clearly was invented, you know, by the founders. At least, the I was just saying at least initially, but yes, yes. 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 Yeah, you know, it's certainly a guardrail in some ways trying to constrain, you know, popular will and so on. You know, I think, you know, today we have a, a system of checks and balances. I mean, the U.S. famously, its constitution divides power among different branches of government, federal system. These are ways of the American system was really designed to disperse power. Um, and so, you know, the democratic part of that is that, you know, power, this prevents, or in, you know, in principle, is supposed to prevent the concentration of power. And so our checks and balances have tended to work really well, I would say, for the most part. I mean, there's obviously um, notable exceptions throughout history, Nixon, uh, you know, being the most recent one in our kind of lifetimes. Uh, but, you know, today the courts, um, social institutions like the, the media, um, uh, Congress has served as a check on executive power in principle, and that's what it's designed to do. And one of the things that we've been worried about is that some of these institutions are, you know, get good grades for their performance uh, since the election of President Trump and others less so. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're a bit worried about Congress and Congress's willingness to serve its guard dog function um, to constrain power. And that's, you know, there's some signs that that's not, that's, the Congress is not living up to what it's supposed to, to be doing. And so that makes us worried. You know, and one of the things that, that it seems to me, uh, my words, not yours, that we've always had partisan politics. We've always had, you know, like Jefferson had his newspapers, Hamilton had his newspapers. But there seems to be, and maybe the, the, the rate of information that we receive um, and the speed in which we receive it, a hyper-partisanship that is unique to American democracy. I wonder how you, how you gentlemen saw that. I don't know about unique, um, and uh, and we, we've had periods of really hyper and really dangerous hyperpartisanship before. You mentioned a period just now, which is the 1790s, late 1780s, 1790s, early 1800s. The Federalists and the uh, and the, the early Jeffersonian Republicans despised one another. They they saw each other as uh, as seditious, as traitors who were trying to undermine the new republic. The polarization between those two parties um, was uh, probably more severe than the partisan differences we, we face today. And the, those two parties tried to ruin one another. They played what we call uh, an extreme form of, of constitutional hardball, trying to to, to use the, the, the rules of the game to essentially permanently de- defeat the other party. Um, we fell into a period, obviously, of intense 
partisan conflict prior to the Civil War and our democracy, or our was it was not a fully democratic system, but our our republic fell apart, obviously in the 1860s. So we've had periods of severe and damaging polarization before, um, but this is certainly the first the the, the most polarized our parties have been. Um, in over a century and maybe since the end of Reconstruction. And I, I would also just yeah. add, go, I'm sorry, go, go right go ahead. ahead. Oh, no, no, I mean, I was just, I would, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, that, that the causes of polarization, when you look around the world, one of the things that makes us nervous is that polarization does, you know, polarization is in some sense a good thing. There's, it's good to have healthy competition between parties. But when you when, when, when a country faces extreme polarization, um, and we could sort of talk more about what exactly we mean by that. We lay that out more in the book. This is very damaging for democracy. If you look around the world, the breakdown of the democracies in the world is often preceded by inc- incredibly intense, deep animosities among parties. You know, and it takes different forms in different countries for different reasons, but it has this manifestation of parties, people, politicians treating each other as if the other side, uh, even though it may be playing by the rules, has no right to be in power. And so when, when politicians begin to act that way and when citizens act that way, kind of driving the politicians, then this, this can be dangerous. You know, That's absolutely right. I mean, parties can, uh, can disagree with, with one another. Parties can even dislike one another. But when the parties view one another as enemies, as beyond the pale, and view the victory of the other side as something that's intolerable, unacceptable, democracy is in danger. And, and to that, and to that end, I know you, you, you cite this in the book, but uh, would it be fair to say that Reconstruction was authoritarian form of rule for for a period of time? Sure, uh, and the failure of Reconstruction gave gave rise to another authoritarian form of rule. Now, I happen to think that 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 many of the key goals of Reconstruction 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 excuse me were not only laudable but importantly democratic. I mean, Reconstruction aimed to bring about racial equality and bring, and bring about full democratic rights, at least for all men, which would have made the United States for the first time uh, a democracy. Um, so the goals were, were, were fundamentally democratic, but to impose it on the South required essentially several years of outright military rule. Uh, you know, the, the federal government imposed dictatorships on, on the states. Now, when, when, when Reconstruction was dismantled and abandoned, um, the, the, the Democratic Party then took this extraordinarily undemocratic measure of stripping away voting rights of African Americans and established almost a century of single-party authoritarian rule in nearly a dozen states in the South. So both Reconstruction, Reconstruction had authoritarian elements, but the failure of Reconstruction had long-term authoritarian consequences. I don't. I mean, I, I think that it seems to me the most important fact about Reconstruction was not that it was authoritarian, but that it was really an effort to democratize the, the South and the United States as a whole. You know, and throughout history, um, you know, if you think of post-war Germany, you know, democracies often come at the end of a gun, and so you know, clearly that those early, you know, in that sense, there there's a way in which coercion was being used to try to impose democracy. Um, but I think the, the kind of, you know, this was a democratic experiment that essentially was defeated, um, and the post-Reconstruction period was one in which democracy was clearly dismantled. And one of the areas, um, the reason I raised that, was in, a, in, a, in American history, it seems to me, there is, or just the American narrative in general, there, there, there is the the copycat sort of aspect. And I think the, democracy is not immune to that. I mean, um, Republicans have long been um, uh, recent in recent in recent history the the ones who have uh, been blamed for shutting down the government and so now that that so now this whole shutting down the government has become weaponized and so we we, we see both parties engaging in it and I wonder um, if, if the recent shutdown is sort of reflective of some of the concerns that you have for the destruction of of our democracy. Absolutely, uh, we we're very very concerned about this spiraling effect, this tit-for-tat dynamic that you, that you point to. I mean, I, in, in our view, the process of norm erosion began uh, 
it's easiest to identify it in the early 1990s with uh, with the Gingrich Revolution. Gingrich is, is really sort of gave us the modern government shutdown in the 1990s. I think that the partisan impeachment of Bill Clinton was another example of abandoning norms of, of, of self-restraint or what we call forbearance. And so this, we think, began with the radicalization of the Republican Party. But there's no question that it has, uh, that this is sort of tit-for-tat process in which Democrats come under pressure to respond uh, in the same manner. They come under pressure from their, from their allies, from their constituents, to not be the sucker, to not be bullied uh, by the Republicans. And the shutdown is an example of that. Um, I think that if uh, there, there's talk in, in some progressive circles, for example, if the, if the Democrats win control of the Senate, that Democrats might do to Trump what the Republican Party did to President Obama, which is deny him the right to fill a Supreme Court vacancy should one emerge. Um, we have seen this movie before in Europe, in Latin America, and when um, when you get this sort of spiraling, escalating tit-for-tat of, consti- of what we call constitutional hardball, the, the end result is, is rarely good. It rarely ends well. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, and I, I would add to, I would add to that that, you know, you know we're 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 nervous about how things are unfolding. Um, and and in our book we make the case for uh, norm reinforcing behavior for Democrats. You know, as, as Steve said, we think this really began on the Republican side. Um, but that said, you know, it's it's a you face a tough set of dilemmas. You know, you think of the government shutdown. You know, if you you know passionately believe in, you know defending the uh, the dreamers and think that this is an important issue and a kind of fundamental issue, then there's really, you know, when people say, well, we need to shut down the government in order to achieve this, you know, that, that's a, that's a compelling argument. I mean, you know, if you really genuine, if you believe this is worth abandoning kind of normal democratic procedures for or normal, normal constitutional procedures. So, you know, the question is then, you know, under, under, you know, what's, what are the outer limits of forbearance? When do you, when do you give up forbearance? It's it's certainly a tricky issue. Yeah. Our point is simply to highlight this as a potential cost. I mean, I think the way that I sense debate going. I mean, I, you know, I've heard kind of hard-boiled uh, politicos saying, you know, look at the dilemma and the government shutdown is if we hold if we shut down the government too long, we may, you know, conservative Democrats are going to get punished back in their home states. But we re- but on the other hand, we really believe in in trying to promote the, protect uh, the dreamers. And that's the calculation. We have to weigh those two things. And we're just we want to throw a third variable into the calculation, into the moral calculation, which is, well, let's think about also what the damage is, the long run damage to the political system. And so that's that's one more important factor to be considered when when politicians and voters are thinking about these sorts of decisions. You know, I'm I'm uh, guessing I'm sure you've heard this comment already that uh, many Americans would would offer. Um, at least reflexively, that no single American, I'm speaking specifically of President Trump now, could des- could destroy the world's oldest democracy. And, and, and isn't our democracy safe as long as the Constitution remains in place? How, how do you gentlemen respond to that observation? We're not quite so uh, confident. Um, having, having looked at the performance of our own Constitution over time and the performance of other constitutions. In fact, much of my part of the world, Latin America, borrowed almost word for word the U.S. Constitution at the time of Latin American independence in the early 19th century. The Constitution alone is a, is a pretty brilliant document, but it's not enough to safeguard a democracy. And our system of checks and balances, as Daniel mentioned a few minutes ago, by itself is not enough. Our system of, of constitutional checks and balances works well when it's reinforced by these unwritten rules of mutual toleration and forbearance. Without those norms, even our brilliantly designed Constitution can go awry. And uh, it's true. It's true that a single leader can't destroy a democracy. But what we're arguing is that the problem facing our democracy um, run deeper than Trump. Trump is a problem. Trump is is not committed to, to, to democratic norms, so he's somebody that all concerned citizens should uh, be vigilant about and, and should worry about. But the problems run deeper than that. It's Unfortunately, it's not just one man 
who poses a challenge to our democracy. It's a, it's a very, very intense polarization that's beginning to unravel our democratic norms. Dan, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, so, you know, so what, what happens every few weeks is, is you know, the, the president will speak in a kind of more moderate tone and people will say, ah, oh, he's acting presidential, you know, so the State of the Union address is coming up and, you know, by some accounts it's going to kind of push a kind of more modest and moderate line. And, you know, so there's two points about that. Number one, you know, there's lots of, you know, that that's this week. We'll see what happens next. Let's see what happens next week. But to kind of emphasize Steve's point, you know, the, the concern is less about a single leader and more about uh, deeper dynamics in the political system. So, you know, that can maybe reassure us, and it should. But on the other hand, you know, we have to keep our eye on the ball of other things that are going on in our political system, often at the state level, as well as the na- national dysfunction of, of our national political institutions as well. You know, um, I'm going to bring the conversation back to, to, to those actual guardrails that, that, that um, you you all have written so persuasively about that, that are in some jeopardy. And since we're uh, doing the show, The Public Rally from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, you cite uh, the Tar Heel State uh, as being emblematic of what politics without guardrails looks like. And I wonder if you could expand on that. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we, um, we, you know, we, we, in our, in our last chapter, we kind of lay out future scenarios for the United States. And so we, um, we looked at uh, North Carolina and realized that North Carolina is an interesting state because in many ways it's, you know, ha- has some similarities. It's a kind of microcosm at some level of the United States in the sense that it's a purple state. It's a state that, um, has become more democratic in recent years, but there's, you know, sharply fractured uh, electorate. Um, and so what we've seen, uh, you know, in the last couple of years in the governor's race in, and so on, and after, immediately afterwards, is the use of institutions as weapons. And you kind of have a kind of, and what we've described as constitutional hardball is really on display, um, where, you know, the electoral efforts to redraw the electoral map um, and change the rules of the game after a new governor has been elected. This is really pushing right up to the edge and so that the heightened sort of tenor of politics um, in which so much seems to be at stake for both sides uh, means that the institutions become no longer the rules of the game, but part of the game. And once the institutions are part of the game, everything is up in the air. And so that's, you know, in some ways we, we kind of look to North Carolina to see what's happening in North Carolina because we think this is, you know, is instructive about what's happening in our national politics as well. Uh, Steve, anything to add? Yeah. That's a classic case of what we call politics without guardrails. That when we, if we let our democratic norms continue to erode, that we'll get this sort of no holds barred, anything goes, partisan fight to the death that we've seen at least intermittently in North Carolina in recent years. And and uh, to, to build on Daniel's point, what the, the parallel that we see is that in North Carolina you have an increasingly diverse society. And a Republican Party that largely represents white Christians, white Protestants, that feels itself a, a majority that's about to lose its majority, or a majority in decline. And that tends to be radicalizing. That tends to lead to, um, to fairly uh, extremist behavior. Um, and we worry that, that we're going to continue to see that at a national level. Now, now to that end, um, um, how much... Does I mean you certainly mentioned you know the role of Congress um, or lack thereof, uh, and and not being a guardrail. But but how much does the public ath- apathy and nihilism p- play into your observations? I don't know about nihilism, but apathy certainly doesn't doesn't help. I mean, it uh, our democracy is clearly better off in a number of ways if uh, when everybody votes or when the vast majority of the electorate at least votes uh, and, and is aware of what's going on in politics. The level of, uh, of, of voting participation and awareness is relatively low in the United States. And one of the problematic dimensions of that is that those who do vote and those who are aware tend to be at the political extremes. We, there are a lot of moderates out there who simply are not um, involved in politics and are not going out to vote on Election Day. Uh, and that is one of the things, not the only thing, but it's one of the things that is contributing to our, our polarization. 
Yeah, and, and another note on that. I mean, it's you know, in some ways, it's easy to bl- blame citizens for just not going out to vote, and I'm sure there's some citizens who deserve the, the blame for not going out to vote. But on the other hand, I think an important uh, role is played by political parties as well as civil society organizations, labor unions, church institutions, you know, all, and, and organizations that link voters to politics. And the way that most people t- turn out to vote is when they're members of groups. I mean, isolated individuals who are disconnected from from their communities are less likely to be engaged in politics. And so at some level, the task is, is not just about you know, in, in telling individuals to go out to vote, but, you know, creating a, a kind of robust civil society in which uh, in which that's more likely to happen. You know, and there are signs that that's happening. I mean, in many ways, the the Women's March, I think, has been one indicator of this, um, you know, and the, the idea that lots of people are kind of beating their political start and, and more women are considering to run for Congress this year as a result of participation in, in this act, activism. So in some ways, that's an, an, it's kind of an unintended side effect, perhaps, of activism is it, it uh, in addition to the kind of individual protests, you know, and, and events that take place, having citizens politicize in those kinds of moments and getting involved in politics is an important way to kind of address that that question of apathy that you're talking about. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with professors Steve Levitsky and Daniel Zablat of Harvard University. They are co-authors of How Democracies Die. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to, should have touched on it earlier, but I think this is a good segue to talk about it, is really what prompted you, uh, the two of you, to to engage in this project? I mean, I, I know certainly the, the election of Donald Trump was a piece of it, but you, but you also mentioned the problem that you write about is much larger than the 2016 election results. Yeah, well, so Steve and I are colleagues. We teach together and research on similar topics and talk a lot about our research. I've tended to focus on European politics from the 19th century to the present. So kind of a historical bent looked looked at the collapse of democracies and interwar Europe and in different points in time. Steve studied Latin America and other parts of the developing world and looked at democracies in crisis and authoritarianism in other countries. And we, you know, we saw these kind of echoes in our election and that's what really got us to talk about these things. Um, and our, and the idea was really to draw, you know, when we look at, in some ways, I think citizens and you know consumers of news in the U.S. are faced with a, you know, especially nowadays with social media and 24-hour news, are faced with a barrage of headlines and breaking news alerts. And it's you know just this afternoon there's one, you know, the FBI and you know, so many of the FBI's uh, retiring, and so you know it's you know treated as if this is a crisis. You know, maybe who knows? But the point is, you know, that it's hard to kind of distinguish what's important and what's not important. And we felt that drawing upon our experience of having looked at other countries that have faced democratic crises and succumbed to them and other countries that have faced democratic crises and overcome them, that we could draw some lessons from those other countries' experiences to help us, you know, place what's happening in the United States into context. And so to, to, to kind of provide a baseline of comparison against which we could assess how different the U.S. is or how similar it is. And just having that frame of reference, I think, you know, we hope is useful for re- readers and useful for, for U.S. citizens. Steve, anything? Yeah, if I could just add, um, I think one thing that studying uh, democracy in other countries makes clear is that the United States is not, uh, it's in many ways a, an unusual country, and it's a, it's an historically, uh, it's got the oldest, most successful constitution in the world, in many ways, been a very successful democracy, um, but it's not exceptional, and it's not unique, and it certainly is not immune to the kinds of crises that face other countries. So, one thing we both worry about a lot is that Americans, and and I would say I would include myself in this, have long taken American democracy for granted. We consider it uh, an, an immovable op- object, something that is indestructible. Uh, and that's simply not true. American democracy remains very strong. Its institutions are strong. It very likely will survive the Trump presidency. But we need at least to be able to recognize the warning signs. We need to be able to at least know something about what's gotten other democracies in trouble and what democracies elsewhere have done to resolve these problems and to avoid sliding into crisis. If we just sort of blissfully 
uh, go on whistling and, and, and believing that our democracy is somehow immune because of the air or the water or the culture or the Constitution, um, it, it could be, we, we, we could be in trouble. Well, I think you make a great point, given that um, when you think about the Tocqueville originating American exceptionalism and how the Tocqueville used that phrase and how it's been used in the public discourse are not exactly the same thing. Right. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I think I think Steve's reference before of the post-Reconstruction South, um, you know, one of the things, one of, you, know, you know, highlights that, you know, we, the U.S. has faced these kinds of troubles before and... and well, and so, you know, this is something that, I, in fact, you know, if you look at the kind of way, the, the unfolding nature of these reforms, and we kind of document this in the book, um, in which voting rights are restricted often under the label of neutral sounding kinds of reforms that were, were put, you know, put under the guise of cleaning up the vote when, in fact, they were simply disenfranchising voters. This is something that one sees in democracies today, you know, and, and you know, slightly different form, but. You know, this kind of this strategy of using neutral language to roll back democracy is something that's happened in the U.S. It's something that's happened in other countries. And again, it's, you know, so it's something that, again, makes the U.S. less unique than we might sometimes think. Um, with the time we have left, what I'd like to do, um, and, we, and we can start with uh, Daniel on this, uh, I want to take um, the, the, the four indicators of authoritarian uh, behavior that you, that, you, that you cite in the book. And I'll start with number one, and, and um, Dan, you can start, and now then number two, go to Stephen. I have you just sort of espouse on those, if you would. Okay. So the first one, yeah. is, so the oh, first yeah, one is um, rejection or weak commitment uh, to democratic traditions. Not traditional yeah. rules. Yeah, democratic rules of the game. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, these are these what, what we're about to go through here. These are indicators. We, we draw on some other research from a great political scientist, Juan Lins, who lived through the interwar crises of democracy, the Spanish uh, political scientist who lived in Weimar, Germany, and during the Spanish Civil War. And what he did is he kind of came up with these indicators that we've elaborated, which uh, tell us what to look for in a candidate when they're running for office or a politician before they come into office. And, you know, really mostly in their rhetoric. Uh, that are signs that somebody once in power might be a danger. And so that this first one you've mentioned, rejection of the democratic rule of the game. I mean, this includes things such as you check the Constitution. They talk about they express a willingness to violate it. Do they, uh, you know, seek to use unconstitutional means to come to power? Do they say, you know, we should have a military coup and so on? You know, we haven't had a politician do that in the United States, but, you know, we have had a politician, a presidential candidate, undermine the legitimacy of elections by refusing to accept the, the results of an election. I mean, there's, there is a threat in this in any case. Um, and this is something that is a, really a hallmark of democracy that you, you know, one of the definitions of democracy that political scientists sometimes use is democracy is a system of rule in which one side loses. You know, if, if one side's not willing to lose, then it's hard to have, let the democratic game continue. And so this is this last one is something that we really often see authoritarians um, violate, you know, threatening not accept the result of election and then calling into question the legitimacy of elections, even when by all objective measures they are free and fair elections. Well, that sort of ties into number two, which is denial of legitimacy of political opponents. We haven't seen that in 2016, did we? Yeah. So they, you know, so that here, you know, the question is, do you accuse, do politicians accuse their rivals? So this is, these are, these are kind of indicators for the behavior of politicians. Do politicians accuse their rivals of being criminals baselessly? Uh, do they uh, accuse their rivals of being existential threats to the political system without any evidence? Or do they say that their, you know, and their political rivals are, you know, criminals that should be locked up? Uh, you know, normally this would be way beyond the pale. You know, we've had politicians make this use this kind of language throughout American history, but never in a presidential campaign in the 20th century has a candidate of a major political party accused the opposition party of being uh, the candidate of being a criminal that deserves to be locked up. May I chime in for just one moment? What we had in 2016. I'm going to follow up with something though, because you, you you talked about the campaign there, and it just occurred to me. Would that also include governing in that, and I don't mean to be partisan here, but the, but, but the, but the historical facts are the historical facts, that uh, you mentioned the Gingrich Revolution. There was a sense emanating from the Republican side of the ledger that Clinton was not a legitimate 
president. And you had the similar when Barack Obama became president. So would you include that behavior as well in number two? Yeah, well, um, well I mean, again, as Daniel said, this particular um, four indicators is meant to help us identify candidates who are not fully committed to democracy before we elect them, before they come to power. So our focus with this is specifically candidates. But absolutely, we argue uh, in the book that the Republican Party began to, to lose its commitment to, the, to norms of, of, of toleration and, and forbearance in the 90s. And I think you're right. There were, there were hints of this in the Gingrich opposition to Clinton, but it was very strong and very evident in our view during uh, when Obama ran for president in 2008 and during his presidency. There, for the first time, you see major Republican figures from Rudy Giuliani to Newt Gingrich to Sarah Palin, to Mike Huckabee, to Donald Trump, declaring that Obama doesn't love America, that he's anti-American, that he's un-American, and in the case of the birthers, that he truly is not an American citizen and therefore is not the legitimate president. All of that, in our view, is, is yes, the denial of the legitimacy of your rival, and, which we and, think is very dangerous for democracy. And you mentioned it earlier. I just want to follow up. Um, we'll, we'll get back to the to the two more. But you mentioned it earlier. But would it also be fair that that sort of delegitimizing legitimize not having a hearing for Merrick Garland when the Constitution clearly says otherwise? Well, again, we think it's a it's a product of extreme polarization. When when one side views the other side as an existential threat as beyond the pale, it becomes more willing to pursue its goals by any means necessary, to not necessarily use restraint in, in, in their action. And that, whether it was the denial of Obama's legitimacy personally, or whether it was the Republicans' belief that they had to sort of pursue their goals at all costs, because uh, a Democratic-controlled Supreme Court would be beyond the pale, I guess I couldn't tell you. But but they're closely related. All right, let's. Uh, we're number three. Toleration or encouragement of violence. Encouragement of violence. Well, yeah, you guys know them better than I do. Why am I reading them out? Just go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Steve, Kurt, you go ahead and describe these. Yeah, yeah a, a lot of a lot of democracies that that uh, that Daniel and I have studied have uh, died amidst a in a climate of violence, often private or paramilitary violence, whether it's Italy in the 1920s or Germany in the early 1930s or Spain in the 30s, or in my part of the world, uh, Uruguay in the 60s and 70s, Argentina in the 70s, Brazil in the 1960s, it, prior to the breakdown of democracy, in the years prior to the breakdown of democracy, you see an increase of violence, whether it's terrorist groups or guerrillas, right-wing paramilitary groups, groups on all sides begin to sort of take action in their own hands, often quite violently. And so uh, Juan Linz, who, who, from whom we borrow quite a bit in this, in this book and in this in set of indicators, adamantly argued that it was essential, absolutely essential, that politicians, that democratic politicians, always and everywhere condemn violence, whether it's their side or the other side or anybody. When anybody, even your allies, engages in acts of violence, you must condemn it. You must punish it. And so politicians who do not do that, who find ways to kind of justify acts of violence on their side, or who appear to uh, encourage or condone violence, are considered really quite dangerous for democracy. And, and in our view, the kind of behavior that you saw uh, from Donald Trump on the campaign trail, in which in rallies he would openly advocate violence, uh, beating up protesters, talk about the good old days when, when protesters were were carried out in a stretcher, um, offering to pay the lawyers' fees for those who, who engage in violence. And as well as, as President Trump's um, shameful response in the presidency to the Charlottesville violence, um, that's pretty dangerous behavior. And again, unprecedented among major party candidates. And number four is? I'm, I'm not going to even bother reading it. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Number four is, uh, is a willingness to curtail the civil liberties of opponents, including the media. Uh, and here, where we're um, in the United States, what has, what has emerged as a problem in the last couple of years 
is, uh, is attacks on the press, uh, a willingness. Donald Trump, both in the campaign and as president, although he hasn't done this, has talked about using libel laws and other mechanisms to punish uh, media that, uh, that, that that's independent or, or critical. And, um, you know, advocating stripping away the civil liberties of, of, of opponents or the media, um, undermining the free press, is, again, a, a major threat to, to democracy. So finally, I'm, I'm wondering, um, in this present space, one sees the title, How Democracies Die, and obviously, depending on their perspective, um, I can see how some might conclude that this is a political polemic uh, against the current occupant of the White House. Uh, but the problems you cite are, 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 are much more entrenched. And, and I wonder, um, uh, any closing thoughts, any takeaways for people um, who have yet to read, to read this uh, must-read book, in my view? Yeah. Well, we, you know, we, what, we, we, what we try to do in the book is both identify the deeper problems in the American political system. I think there's few who disagree with the idea that the American political system is not operating as designed or as we expected or as what we hope. And so the the question is to try to understand what's what's gone wrong and what's going wrong. Um, we make the so you know, and, and I think most would agree that hyperpolarization. The objective evidence suggests hyperpolarization is present in the United States, and this is a problem. You know, there may be disagreements about where this started. You know, we provide evidence, and we think there's the evidence is, is supports our position that. This really began with the radicalization of the Republican Party. I mean, in the 1990s, as Steve has described. So you know, the process began there. But at some level, you know, people don't have to accept our uh, diagnosis of the history. The real question is, going forward, how do we get out of a kind of death spiral where each side views itself as legitimate and the other side is not legitimate? And if we're in that death spiral moving forward, the real question is, how do we get out of that? Um, and so what are the purpose of our book is to identify and then name and highlight the significance of this problem that we currently face. And so even if one disagrees with that particular historical component of our argument, the diagnosis, I think, uh, we hope, is something that everyone can, can take seriously. Anything you want to add? Uh, Steve, I think Daniel said it well. I mean, what our, our hope is to, is to make politicians and citizens more aware of the damage that can be done. Again, we have spent too long taking our democracy for granted. And even though our democratic institutions remain strong, even though there's a very good chance that we'll muddle through this, um, polit the politicians who are engaging in, in this increasingly reckless behavior with regard to our institutions have to be aware that um, our democracy, our institutions are not unbreakable. They are playing around with something that can be broken. And if our book can, can help raise awareness of that, um, it will be satisfying. Harvard professors Steve Levitsky and Daniel Zablad, thank you. Much appreciated you taking the time to be on the public morality today. Thanks very much, Byron. Thanks for the great thank question. Stay tuned as I speak with former vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board, Alice Rivlin, on this archived edition of The Public Morality. Welcome back. As we continue this archived edition of The Public Morality, here's an interview from earlier this year with former director of the White House Office of Management and Budget in the Clinton administration and former vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board, Alice Rivlin. Dr. Alice Rivlin, welcome to The Public Morality. Delighted to be here. Uh, in a recent piece that you wrote that appeared uh, on the Hill and was reposted on the Brookings site, you compared the climate on Capitol Hill similar to squabbling children. And now that they've passed the budget averting another government shutdown, what are your current thoughts related to the fiscal governing in 2018? Well, at least we did get a 
budget for the rest of this fiscal year and the next one, and that's a good thing. They stopped careening from one short-term uh, <laughs> resolution to another, uh, which was just ridiculous and uh, costly. But they haven't solved the problem. Uh, for the last several years, economic policy has been extremely acrimonious, full of the blame game. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. And uh, we are not even looking at the long-run issues that uh, we need to be focusing on as a nation, uh, such as the rise in debt or climate change or uh, rapidly growing inequality. Now, over the years, um, we've had a number of deficit hawks that walk the halls of Capitol Hill. I'm thinking of people like, uh, say, the late Warren Rudman, um, also the, the, the late Pete Domenici, um, and they, they would talk about a day of reckoning if, if, if America sustained deficit spending. Could you just take a moment and talk about the dangers of long-term deficit spending? Yes. And I think I count probably as uh, one of those deficit hawks. Well, you absolutely count. That's why we're having you on. <laughs> right. Uh, but it's complicated. Uh, it's not that we should never run deficits. Uh, if the economy is in uh, a deep recession, as we had after the uh, financial crisis of 1908, uh, I'm sorry, 2008, um, if we have a deep recession, then uh, the uh, deficits appear uh, automatically. And that's a good thing. Uh, because you don't want the government to be raising taxes or cutting spending uh, in a recession. The government can balance the fact that uh, the private sector is not doing well. But in the long run, we've got to pay for the services of government. And we don't have to pay for them every year, and we don't have to pay for them completely. We can run a little bit of debt. But if the debt is rising faster than our income is, if we have a debt as, which is rising as a percent of the gross domestic product, for example, then that's a dangerous situation, and it's the situation that we're in now. And it's dangerous because every year you have to pay more and more interest on that debt, and eventually... If your debt is going up faster than your income, your creditors lose confidence in you, and uh, they refuse to buy any more of this debt. So the United States is a very fortunate country. We have a strong economy, and people all over the world are willing to lend us money. In a sense, that spoils us. Uh, we don't have to be as fiscally responsible as other countries do, but we've taken too much advantage of this. Uh, we ought to be looking down the road and saying, look, this cannot go on. Our spending is rising faster than our tax revenue is coming in. That's going to get worse over the next few years because of the higher expenditures for an aging population. So we better do something to fix it. Well, it seems to me, and you're certainly your your experience with this um, is, is much va much more vast than mine, but it seems to me that it is always, it's usually the minority party in Congress that seems to be more concerned about the debt than the party uh, and the majority. The, the, the latest um, uh, spending and tax increases suggest that we may be dangerously close to uh, 101% debt-to-GDP ratio. Um, is, that, is that accurate, or, um, or, or how, how, do, how do you see that? Well, the debt-to-GDP ratio is now uh, about 77%, but it's headed up. So you're, you're right about that. And you're also right that, in general, the party that is not in charge is worried about the deficit spending of the one that is in charge. We had a respite from that situation in the 1990s. I was in the Clinton administration uh, for the first two years uh, we had a Democratic Congress. We were determined uh, to reduce the growth of debt, and we did, with some difficulty, uh, get a first uh, deficit reduction package through the Democratic Congress. 
Then the Republicans won in 1994. Newt Gingrich came in, and he was actually even more dedicated to balancing the budget uh, than the Democrats were. He wanted to do it in a different way. Uh, but both parties were dedicated to bringing the debt under control. Uh, and we had a back-and-forth negotiation. It wasn't always pretty about how to do it. And eventually we worked out a compromise, and it was even more successful than anybody thought it was going to be because we built up a surplus for several years at the end of the uh, 90s. We hadn't been aiming for a surplus. We'd been aiming to balance the budget. Uh, but the economy was doing so well that we got a surplus. And that surplus lasted from 98 till the end of 2001, I believe. Right. Yeah. And then uh, we had a, several things happen. One was the Bush administration came in and did a major tax cut. Uh, we had expenditures uh, for uh, the uh, wars in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq. Uh, we passed a rather expensive uh, addition to Medicare, uh, and uh, all in all, the deficits came back. Was there or is there a, a point in terms of governing that America accepted uh, deficits as just a part of our economic reality for some of the reasons you mentioned earlier that maybe we can afford to run deficits like, unlike other countries? Well, we've certainly taken advantage of the fact that uh, we could borrow easily uh, over uh, quite a number of years. Uh, the current run-up in debt to GDP dates mainly from the recession, the deep, the great recession, as we call it, uh, which uh, started uh, with the crash in uh, 2008. That was inevitable. We had uh, it was necessary to have a recession. Uh, uh, necessary to have a, uh, a deficit in the recession and to take some steps uh, like the stimulus package and uh, cutting some taxes that would uh, help us get through the, uh, the recession. That worked. Uh, now we're uh, out of the recession. The unemployment rate is down. Uh, but we haven't looked far enough ahead at the retirement of the baby boom generation, the cost that generates. And the fact that our tax system is simply not going to give us enough revenue to pay all those benefits, we have to borrow the difference. And it's a larger and larger difference. And that's the source of the prospective increases in debt. And given that borrowing, at the current interest rates, the, why uh, would China and others continue to buy our bonds? China and other countries uh, benefits from having a good economy in the United States. They don't want to throw us into a tailspin. So they have uh, a, a lot to lose if they stop buying our bonds. And uh, uh, we have uh, rapidly increasing interest rates and uh, uh, plunge into recession ourselves. Uh, so uh, we need to work this thing out uh, before our creditors get uh, so scared about our credibility that they do stop buying our bonds. Now, you've, you've been honored to serve on several blue-ribbon commissions to address the deficit. Uh, now, I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting this as someone from the outside, but we see the commissions are formed. The committees do honest work, but there seems to be a gap between the recommendations offered by the committee and the actual implementation uh, for the reason that the, that the, that the uh, committee was uh, formed. Uh, it seems like the committee was formed to appease the public. Is that reality? Uh, um, you were on those committees. How, how, did, how did that feel to you? No, I don't think uh, those commissions are, are appointed to appease the public. Uh, they're appointed to try to uh, solve the problem. Uh, I served on the Simpson-Bowles Commission, uh, appointed by uh, President Obama, uh, but it uh, was composed of uh, members of Congress from both parties and both the Senate and uh, the House, as well as some public members, of which I was lucky enough to be one. Uh, and we made some good recommendations. Republicans and Democrats worked together uh, and uh, came up with a good set of recommendations. But those recommendations always involve some pain. Uh, there are only 
two things you can do about a deficit. You can cut spending uh, or you can raise taxes. And we've got to do both. And the commission recognized that we had to do both, that gradually over time we had to reduce the rising cost of health care benefits for older people, and we had to raise some more revenue. Uh, that means tax increases, but it can mean tax increases in the context of a tax reform that makes the system fairer and broader base and actually lowers the rates. So in that commission and others I've served on, uh, we had those proposals. But they didn't pass uh, because there wasn't the political will in either political party to take responsibility for things they knew would be unpopular. Uh, the Democrats don't want to vote for any uh, reductions in uh, long-run spending, especially not uh, entitlement spending, and Republicans don't want to vote for a tax increase, even if it is a tax reform that lowers rates. Uh, so uh, you're sort of stuck there. And until we get enough leadership in the two parties to say, look, we got to join hands and do this thing together, uh, we're not going to solve the problem. You know, you know, you know Dr. River, and I, as you were giving that answer, I, I was recalling um, a report that I read from uh, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget um, that projected that by, if, if we continue the same level of spending or increases the same level of sp in, in spending along with extending out the recent tax cuts through 2027, we're looking at $2 trillion dollars. Yeah, it's big, but it's, we're a big economy. I don't think the problem is that uh, uh, the things you have to do are so uh, to solve the problem of rising debt are so massive, but you have to start doing them soon, do them gradually over time, and make sure that the country understands what you're doing and that the leadership of both parties is on board so that neither can demonize the other and say uh, those terrible people uh, on the other in the other party uh, are making you do hard things. We have to do hard things, and we need both parties recognizing that. The, the deficit isn't the only problem we're denying. Climate change uh, is another, and it has the same characteristics. Uh, if we're going to solve this problem or mitigate it over the next few years, uh, there's going to be some pain involved. It's going to be hard. Uh, and we need the party leadership in both parties that will say, we have to get on top of this, uh, and uh, we're uh, going to agree to do the necessary things. Well, what I hear you saying is that, uh, let's just say, if if I'm a Democrat, you're a Republican, just for this for this conversation, I'm okay with the pain if it's your people. Right? Is that? Is, but I'm not. But I'm going to tell my people can be pain free. Is that? Is that what's going yeah, on? Yeah, that's uh, that's basically it. And uh, it's very un-American, in my uh, opinion. Uh, it's denying that there's a problem, uh, and it is refusing to take responsibility. Uh, you know, uh, when you want your uh, economy to grow faster or your business to grow faster. Uh, you have to invest now in order to have a more productive economy in the future. That means you can't spend as much in the near term, for example. Uh, we know that uh, lots of desirable things take uh, difficult decisions and uh, cause some pain. But our political system now has gotten so partisan that neither party uh, wants to uh, accept responsibility. They just want to blame the other one. And that's a recipe for disaster. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Alice Rivlin, former vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board and currently a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute located in Washington, D.C. Dr. Rivlin, um, this sort of harkens back to what we were talking earlier. Um, I won't go so far as to say that Authentic de deficit hawks are extinct on Capitol Hill, but they feel to be an endangered species. And I wonder how you, how you saw that. <laughs> well, I translate that to say we're not, we're only doing short.
short-term, uh, short-term policy, focusing on getting past the next uh, few weeks or a few months, uh, as we did in the recent uh, budget agreement, which I thought was a good one. Uh, but it doesn't face up to the long-run problems, and the deficit growth, the debt growth in debt, is one of them. Uh, we are simply in denial about these uh, uh, bigger problems that face us down the road, and the denial is very costly because uh, we are not taking the small steps that we could take in the near term and risking that we'll have to take bigger ones later. In the long term, uh, and we can, you can also include include your analysis with, with climate change, which you've mentioned several times in, in this conversation. But in the long term, are we putting our national security at risk with this behavior? Oh, I think we're putting uh, a lot at risk. We're putting the prosperity of our economy at risk, and we're ta- putting our reputation as a democracy that can solve problems at risk. The world looks at the disarray in Washington right now, the bickering, the name-calling, the ugliness, uh, the partisan tribalism, if you will, and says, these people can't get their act together. They can't uh, even uh, solve uh, problems. Uh, The current one is, uh, uh, is immigration. They just fight about it and fight about it. That's a very bad advertisement for democracy. Uh, We send young people around the world to fight and die in the name of democracy, and our democracy at home isn't working right now at all. You know, I mean, mean, these are days you you remember from going back, say, from from the Gingrich days when when he was Speaker of the House to the present moment. Um, We sort of weaponized shutting down the government. Yes. It's sort of to your point. Uh, we have two uh, tactics for blaming the other side. Uh, one is, if you don't do what we want, we'll shut down the government. Uh, Gingrich did that in uh, the mid-90s, uh, 90, 95, 96. Uh, and uh, the, it happened again in 2013, uh, and we just had a brief shutdown before this two-year agreement. Uh, there's a, a shutdown of the government is ridiculous. It's costly. It doesn't benefit anybody. Uh, it's just a weapon to say, if you don't do things our way, uh, we're going to do this costly thing. The other one is the debt ceiling. Uh, we have occasionally run up against uh, the uh, ceiling on what we can borrow uh, as a nation for the obligations we've already undertaken. And uh, then uh, there's a tendency to say, well, uh, we'll use this as a weapon. We'll say we're going to default on our debt if we don't get our way uh, on uh, uh, the budget or whatever it is that's being uh, discussed. Uh, That's even more destructive than shutting down the government. It calls into question the credibility of our our country and whether we pay our debts. Uh, And that could be very, very dangerous. In, in, in this current climate, uh, Dr. River, uh, um, is the dollar secure as the world's uh, reserve currency? Oh, well, I think uh, there's nothing that's undermining the dollar uh, right now, uh, but um, eventually other country, uh, other currencies uh, uh, will uh, will challenge us. We could have a world currency uh, at some point. But there's nothing really uh, terrible about having uh, people keep their uh, countries keep their reserves uh, in euros or in some other uh, acceptable currency in addition to them. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. 
The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.